If you'd open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. This is our third week in Ephesians. Admittedly, we are moving forward fairly slowly. As last week, again today, we're going to take up only one verse, and it's verse 4. So let me read it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to your word, and we know that it is what you have in grace and mercy made known to us. Father, help us to glory in it. Help us to embrace it by faith. Lord, we pray and ask that you would come alongside of us and instruct us into the great truth that we've just read. We give you all praise and all glory for the amazing grace that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for awakening us to our sin and especially to the Savior. So, Father, with eyes of faith, we look to him and he alone for our eternal hope. We're thankful for this opportunity to study the scriptures together. We ask you to bless, open, and break your word to us now in Christ's name. Amen. Excuse me. So in the wisdom of God, this truth hasn't come to us in the way we've just read it, in isolation. We just read the fourth verse. We yanked it off the page. We read it isolated from what is before and what is after. This truth in verse 4 is embedded into one of the greatest strings of revelation concerning our salvation. For several weeks now, and probably for several years, maybe even decades, you have realized that verses 3 through 14 are one long flowing thought of Paul concerning our salvation. Last week we looked at the third verse, and I said there that it was in a, in a sort the umbrella statement of the whole paragraph. Verse three says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ." You can think of that as the beginning of the stream of grace that gets stronger and stronger and stronger as we read down through verse 14. To be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What does that mean? How can we put skin on that phrase and really look at it and observe it? Aren't you thankful we're not left To our own understanding. We're not left especially to our own imagination. To wonder how God has blessed us. With every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places in Christ. Beginning with verse 4. All the way down through verse 14. It's it's as if we can trace out the steps. Of how the Lord has blessed us. He's blessed us in this way. He's blessed us in this way. And in this way. All of them glorious. Standing alone. But made all the more glorious when we combine them and put them together as the Spirit inspired Paul to write them. 
All of these blessings that we will look at in coming weeks, let me remind you, are already yours in Christ Jesus. That was the tense of the verb in the third verse. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So before we get involved with this fourth verse, let me give you two preceding thoughts. The first is that what we're looking at in verse 4 and following, and really this should be true anytime we open the scriptures regardless of the text, we should approach it with humility and with thanksgiving. Ian Hamilton has written this sentence. He says, in the verse, divine sovereignty is never presented as a puzzle to solve, but as a comfort to cherish. We're not trying to fit together the pieces of some complicated puzzle. We're looking at the simple words that the Spirit of God, through Paul, has made known to us. So that's the first thing as we approach this verse. We do so humbly. We do so as to cherish it, to glory in it. But then also, we need to see that this verse and this string of verses really go to great lengths to teach us about the doctrine of sin. What do I mean by that? I'll take the words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he says, there is no doctrine that shows so clearly the real nature of sin and its consequences as this particular statement found in verse 4. In reality, it asserts that we are in such a position in respect of sin that we are utterly helpless and totally incapable of doing anything for ourselves in the matter of salvation. This is what sin has done to man. This is the depth to which sin has taken man. Mankind is indeed far estranged from God. The degree that you agree, the degree to which you agree or disagree with that statement is going to affect your interpretation and how you deal with verse 4. If we see sin as a sickness, then we'll approach the fourth verse in a very different way than I'm going to view it this morning. In my estimation, the Bible does not present sin as a sickness or an illness that we need to overcome. The Bible presents sin in all of its destructing and deceiving force. The result of mankind's sin is not that he is now sick and in need of help. The result of mankind's sin, according to chapter 2, which we'll get to in recent week, in coming weeks, is not that man is sin. It's that not that man is sick. It's that he is dead in sin. Just look over at verse 1 with me of chapter 2. And you he made alive who were sick in trespasses and sins. Not what it says, is it? And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. This speaks to man's spiritual condition after the fall. He is not sin sick. He is spiritually dead. 
And then we're told by Paul and other places in the scripture that mankind in his natural state cannot understand or discern the things of God. He needs to be awakened. And isn't that what the first verse said? And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. So before we proceed, we have to settle in our minds. And let me encourage you, let the scriptures settle this in your minds. We are not to be our own authority. We are not to bring presuppositions that we've held for years, decades to these texts and then make these texts fit into that puzzle. These verses explode many of our puzzles and leaves the pieces and shatters and tatters and we're left wondering what to do. Isn't it a far greater thing to just let the scriptures speak, to order, to speak with authority? And we see that that's exactly what they do here in these verses. So just looking at verse 4, the verse breaks itself in half fairly, fairly well for us. We're not trying to impose or, or press anything on the fourth verse when we break it in two parts. And that's the way I'm going to do it this morning. The first being the beginning of grace. And the second being the end of grace. And I'm using the word end there as the goal. The beginning of grace and the end or the goal of grace. So let's read the verse again. Notice it begins with the phrase, just as, or if you're reading the King James, according as. It means that what follows is in conformity with the fact of what precedes it. And again, the third verse says that God is to be blessed. The word means to speak well of him, to praise him, to worship him. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So we see the two parts of the verse. The beginning of grace is the Father's choosing in Christ before the foundation of the world. The end goal of grace is that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. This verse speaks of God's sovereign election. And it is not isolated to this verse. You can't open your Bible and read without coming face to face with God's divine election. Did he not, in the book of Genesis, select Abram from every other man alive in Ur of the Chaldees? He did. Was Abram at the time of his election by God a pagan idol worshiper? Yes, he was. Was there anything in Abram that made him a special object of the grace of God? No, there wasn't. Did God choose him anyway? Yes, he did. And we can run that thought all the way through the revelation of the scripture. God chose Isaac rather than Ishmael and any of the other sons of Abraham. He chose Jacob rather than Esau. The scripture goes so far in that revelation to say, Jacob, I have loved 
Esau I have hated. And again, those aren't my words. That's what the scripture reveals. And meaning, Jacob I have taken as the special object of my affection and love, not so Esau. Did not he choose Israel over all other nations? He chose Israel to be his own special people over every other nation in the world at that time. Why? According to the good pleasure of his will. There is no reason other than it was according to the good pleasure of his will. There was nothing in Jacob. There was nothing in Israel. There was nothing in Isaac. There was nothing in Abraham that made them stand out of the crowd and become the objects of God's choosing. It was all according to the glories of his grace. And maybe this is a good time to interject this thought. And I'm using the words of Curtis Vaughn to do it. He says, quote, This teaching is often brought in in contexts of praise and devotion and is intended to elicit the adoring gratitude of a redeemed people, end quote. And isn't that the context in which this fourth verse is found? You don't have to go far. Just go to verse 6 to the praise of the glory of his grace. So this, this great truth is revealed from heaven and we are led immediately into doxology and praise. It's very often the opposite in the world in which we live today. Sadly, how often the very opposite happens when we begin to think of divine election or God's sovereignty. It doesn't lead many people into doxology and praise and thanksgiving. It leads them in the very opposite direction. It invokes all kinds of emotion in them. It invokes all types of differing thoughts concerning God and how he has made himself known and how he has acted in his creation. And very often there is a reason for that if we press far enough. Perhaps it was our own reason at some point in time. Too often the starting point with men is men. Too often we want to start everything with ourselves. And we want to say things like, if God has been gracious and merciful to me, it must have been because of me. It must have been because he saw something in me that no one else saw. My mama didn't see it. My daddy didn't see it. No one saw it, but God saw it. And he was gracious and merciful to me. That's the wrong place to start. When we look at these types of doctrines, we always have to begin with God. Isn't that where Paul began? Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. When you read these verses, you'll find that God is taking the initiative. That God is intervening in the lives of men and women. We didn't even speak of Paul who was writing these verses. In recent weeks, we've read and studied of in the book of Acts at home, in our own Bible study, and we read chapter 9. And then you know if you read the book of Acts, chapter 9 is recounted in chapter 22. Chapter 9 is Paul's conversion. 
Chapter 22 is Paul's recounting of his conversion. Let me remind you, Paul was on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians, to drag them back. He had letters from the chief priests that were enabling him to do so. But on the way to Damascus, he was met on the road by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from chapter 9 and especially in chapter 22 when Paul recounts the words that Christ spoke directly to him. It's interesting, isn't it? That the man who was on his way to imprison and possibly even beat as he stood beside the stoning of Stephen... interesting that he is now the one writing to us concerning this choosing of God. Paul understood this truth, which we could state this way. I did not choose him. He chose me. Everything about Paul's life up to Acts chapter 9. Chapter 8, he had just held the clothes of the men who stoned the first martyr of the church. But he was a special object of the Lord's grace, nonetheless. Further proving the point that it is nothing in us that causes God to choose us. It is all of grace. If you use the term free grace, and we should, then keep it free. If we're going to use the terminology, we are saved by God's free grace, then we must keep the definition of the word free in place. Anytime we begin to speak about divine election, and let me just go so far as to say this is not peculiar to Paul only. That's the way many people deal with this. They say, well, you know, it was only Paul that that wrote this way. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion, and he calls them the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's not just peculiar to Paul. It's not peculiar to Peter. It's peculiar to God the Father. There are two ways that people deal with this. Two primary ways. The first is to deal with it just as it is. To see this as the beginnings of grace. This is where grace begins. This is where we have to begin. Those of you who have ever had a job that called you to to work by some protocol or some listing of things that had to be done in order or else everything is going to explode and go haywire, you can understand this. When you begin to think of theology, the doctrine of salvation, this is the starting point, the divine grace of God. If you skip it and go to, to point number two or point number three, It won't be long until you are led into great confusion as you try to rectify Scripture. So the two ways people deal with this truth. God chose based on no merit in the chosen. That is the very definition of free grace. God chose me 
based upon his own good pleasure. But there's another, and it's probably actually the most popular. That God chose me based on his foreknowledge that I would believe in time. We've just removed the freeness out of grace. And what we have put there is God chose me based on something he saw in me. Our starting point has gotten reversed. God chose me because of something he knew about me. Let me remind you, if you were to turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, which I'm going to do, I'm going to read them. Notice that verse 28 says, And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, just notice, take those words at face value. He foreknew a people. He did not foreknow facts concerning a people. He foreknew the person, not what the person would do. There's a great difference and a great distinction with that. These verses reveal to us God being God, which is his prerogative as the creator of heaven and earth. Isn't that the the way that Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 9? Dare we bring up Romans chapter 9? Yes, we should. There is a creature-creator relationship that is in play. God is the potter. We are the clay. The questions arise. And any time, I suppose, I heard R.C. Sproul say this once, and perhaps you did as well. If you're not preaching, if you are preaching the gospel according to the New Testament, you are going to raise questions in your hearers. Questions like fairness. Is this fair? Questions of fatalism. Is this nothing but fatalism? That was the same. Those were the same questions that Paul presupposed were going to be asked to those who read the letter of Romans. Because he answers them. Who are you, old man? Who are you? To question God. Who are you? You're a creature. Now, one of the things that are leveled against espousing and believing these type of doctrines of the many is that only leads people into arrogance to say, look at me. God chose me. Not if you understand it rightly. If you understand it rightly, it will so humble you. And it will so put you down in the dust where you belong. Even with all of my sin. And all of the ways that I have acted out in sinfulness against the mercy and the goodness and the grace and the love of God. He still made me an object of his grace. So far from being arrogant. It presses us into a place of great humility. The other thing that is leveled against this kind of doctrine is, well, you don't believe in evangelism. No. Paul wrote this, and Paul may have very well been the greatest evangelist to ever live. 
Think of his missionary journeys, three of them in the book of Acts, going on circuits. And as he went on those circuits, he was beat, he was left for dead, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. All of those types of things, but none of those things deterred him. Why didn't Paul just rest on his laurels and say, God is electing some to salvation. It doesn't matter what I do. But that's not what he did. He went straightway to the work. He went straight to the work of evangelism. Sinclair Ferguson says, in truth, election and evangelism are not enemies. You can't study church history and read of some of the great names of the faith without seeing that they were men and women who believed in this divine sovereignty of election, but also were great evangelists. Giving their lives and everything that they had to bring the message of the gospel to a people. Election, please hear me clearly, election is not what saves a person. Faith in Christ is what saves a person. How will they believe if they don't hear? How will they believe if they don't hear the message of the gospel? Election does not rule out the absolute necessity of faith in Christ. It does not rule out the absolute necessity of repenting of your sin, turning from your sin, and embracing Christ in truth. Far from it. It does not rule those things out. This is where we begin to sense our own finite nature, isn't it? Our minds become so full and we try to rectify all these things and we say, well, if A is true, B can't be true. And if B is true, A can't be true. And then we bring C in and we get all confused and we just throw our hands up in the air. When, in essence, the scripture calls us to believe A, to believe B, and to believe C. And however many other letters we want to attach to it. If it says it in the Bible, it must be, has to be true, because it is the infallible word of God. Sometimes we just need to come down on the side of saying, I am a creature. My mind is finite. There are limits to my comprehension. All glory be to God. I may not be able to tell you exactly how God did all of this, but guess what? That's okay. I believe it anyway. If you want to study that out further, I'll recommend a book to you. It's written by J.I. Packer, who is best known for his, his work, Knowing God. But that's not the book I'm recommending. He wrote a small book, a small paperback book that's, that's entitled Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he goes on to prove exactly what Sinclair Ferguson has, has said, evangelism and divine election are not enemies. They are best friends. You always, when they are, when they are present in truth, they are present together. Let me say that again. When you find divine election and you believe it and hold it in truth, what you're going to find right next to it is evangelism. In a biblical sense. They have to come together. I want to close this first point of. The beginnings of grace with two quotes. One by a name that you will know very well. One by a name that's perhaps not so well known. The first is Curtis Vaughn. Which you've heard me mention his name often. We've studied one of his booklets before. 
Curtis Vaughn has gone on to be with the Lord. He was professor of New Testament and theology at Southwestern Seminary for, for 50 years. Not any time recently. He says, the prejudice against election is an expression of embedded conceit. For this teaching deals a crushing blow to human pride. It is indeed a leveling doctrine, stripping away all trust in the flesh and bringing men to see that their only hope is the grace of God in Christ. Man, he said a mouthful, didn't he? This doctrine so humbles us before God, and it does indeed deal a crushing blow to our pride. Stripping away anything in us and makes us all see that our only hope is the grace of God in Christ. There's nothing in me. It's all him. Charles Spurgeon, that's the name that you recognize. He says, do not conceive that some decree passed in dark ages of eternity will save your souls unless you believe in Christ. Do not fancy that you are to be saved without faith. That is an abominable and accursed heresy which has ruined thousands. What's he saying? You're not saved based on whether or not you were elect. You're saved on whether or not you have faith in Christ. See it as the same side or two different sides of the same coin, if you will. Election does not save you. Your humbly repenting of your sins, crawling to Christ in faith is what saves you. The scriptures bear that out everywhere. So we've seen the beginning of grace, just as he chose us in him. And notice the time of this choosing or the time of grace. It is before the foundation of the world. Before you were created, before I was created, before Adam was created, before the mountains and the hills were created, before the Lord hung the stars into space, before any aspect of creation, before the foundation of the world, the Father chose, as we read in John 17, we read that on purpose, the Father had a people that he gave to the Son. Jesus said, not me, not Paul, not Peter. Jesus said, they were yours. You gave them to me. Corresponds to what we're told in Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? I can't tell you exactly what all that means. But I can scratch at it a bit. And it means, must mean something like this. The Son of God, His death on Calvary was as good as done before anything that was made was made. Before God's perfect creation, when he looked at everything and pronounced it good. Certainly before the fall of man in the garden through Adam's sin, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. This according to the good pleasure of his will. So what about the end of grace as we conclude? 
We've seen where it begins. It begins in the heart of God as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This second part of this verse absolutely deals the death blow to someone who says, if election is true, then it doesn't matter how I live. As if Paul doesn't deal with that in another place when he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? How does he answer that? God forbid. May it never be. Some would say if election is true, then I can go out and live any way that I want because I'm the elect of God. Far from being true. The beginning of grace, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The end or goal of grace is that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. These are the end goals. And notice there's two parts, but so closely related that we should be holy and without blame before him. We sang this morning, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Holy and without blame before him in love. Why? Because you and I in Christ have already received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If we were to go back to Romans 8, which we've read a portion of those verses, that golden chain of salvation, as some have called it. If you keep reading and you get down to the 29th verse of that 8th chapter, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There again is foreknowledge with an end goal. Of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Which one way that we could delineate what that is. Is to be holy and without blame before him. Just as Christ is even now and always has been. Before God his father. Holy and without blame. So too you and I. Who are united to him by faith. Isn't that a miraculous thing? It should make us want to say something like this in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. God help us to have that response. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Christ. Lord, we're thankful for the truth of scripture. We confess we don't always fully comprehend. Most often we don't fully comprehend. But Lord, give grace that we would be able to see, discern what is there that ends in your glory. Even as Paul prayed for these Ephesians, Lord, we pray for ourselves that you would open the eyes of our understanding. That you would illumine us so that we might see the glories of Christ and the salvation that he has won for us. 
Father, help us to be more concerned with your praise, your glory, your true and right sincere worship than thinking well of ourselves. Lord, we thank you for acting in mercy towards us. We thank you for putting before us the work of evangelism. Help us to be faithful in making the message of Jesus Christ known. Help us to be faithful in spreading the gospel, the only means of man's salvation. We confess that there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. We also know the truth of Scripture that in time every knee will bow Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, our prayer is not that we would become cold and stiff and lifeless in believing and holding to these truths. But that these very truths would warm our hearts and inspire our zeal to serve you. To be profitable servants. Lord, help us in every way to be in right standing before you. We're thankful that you have blessed us in Christ. We're thankful that you have done so that we would be holy and without blame before him. We pray you'll add your blessing to the truth. We pray, Lord that you would keep us from error. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.